Well, this evening of the observance, half moon, and the uh, this is the month of October, and the Vasa is one month left approximately of the Vasa. So, uh, and we can see the days are getting shorter, nights longer. And so if we sit at this very present moment here and now, uh, observing this beginning, beginning of the Vasa, that happened already, that's a memory. The end of the Vasa is, hasn't happened yet. So then it's just this kind of uh, investigating the reality of the here and now. Because we can, we start, you know, we plan for the <coughs> after Vasa and plans for going here, doing this, doing that. And then uh, we can spend the rest of the month just planning the future. So I encourage you to, to, you know, during this Vasa especially, the time to just reflect on this, the, the way we look to the future, planning for a new monastery or a new situation or going somewhere else. It's like this. I'm not saying you don't, can't do it, but you shouldn't do it. But if you really sincerely interested in being liberated from suffering, be with the present rather than living for the future. So this has to be emphasized over and over again because sometimes what the future plans seem terribly important. And uh, here and now doesn't, you know, nothing much to it. Just uh, getting by and then the future is where, uh, you know, you've got to put all your thoughts and efforts to make sure that something happens. <clears throat> but then, you know, ask yourself, what are you really a summoner for? What is the purpose of all this? And I've asked myself, am I here to build monasteries or bring Buddhism to Europe or spread Buddhism or establish a Sangha of monks and nuns in the West. And well, those are all good things, you know, good uh, perceptions. But the thing to never, never lose track of is uh, that enlightenment is here and now. It's always awareness now that is the essence, is the path, is the liberation and never in the future. If you believe it, that's in the future, then you're still caught in the samsara, the illusion of 
I'm somebody doing something now in order to get something in the future. And they were so programmed for that way of living, you know, and the, the self-view. It's such a seemingly important thing. Even this, even this uh, adjective, important, you know, how much importance we give to important things. Important is, this is urgent, this is important. This is a crisis. Or trivial, what is not important, uh, trivial. Of no importance whatsoever, silly, foolish. Is, uh, you know, we just dismiss it. And then we can be pulled into the the sense of importance. Now that is, uh, I'm not saying that, that that's wrong, but be the, you know, what I'm encouraging you to do is to observe it. How this word importance can really, you know, intimidate you. Does me. <laughs> because, you know, the, well, that's the conditioned self. You know, I'm, I want to dedicate my life to what is important. What is important for the Sangha, what is important for the monks, important for the nuns, important for England, important for Buddhism and Theravada Buddhism, important for myself. And the trivial things, the silliness, the ridiculousness, the pettiness is not important. So I can't be bothered with that. Now this is these just pointing to these two extremes, you know, what is important or not important. And the awareness of that, how one, you know, feels uh, kind of can't be bothered with foolishness or nonsense or trivialities. So this is still a sakya ditti, isn't it? It's a, I'm I dedicate my life to what's truly important. And I must relinquish any kind of foolishness or silliness or selfishness or that which is unimportant. And so we listen to this this thinking mind in its way of of um, creating a world and oneself. One doesn't want to think of oneself as being trivial and silly and foolish, even though you might you know think. You you uh, you might feel that way sometimes and feel maybe ashamed of yourself or guilty about not really being you know dedicating yourself really seriously to the practice of the Dhamma like you should do. And so you you know you we get, you know in this life because we tend to be here through altruism. And then that's, you know, that's something to respect and to to uh, appreciate. But the path of liberation is not about altruism. It's about here and now, recognizing, realizing. So what are we here for? Are the nuns here to establish a, a, a nun's order that can prosper and is that what you're here for, or are you here for liberation? Or the monks? You know, 
What about the future of the Sangha and Theravada Buddhism in Europe and and uh, spreading the Dhamma? These are important. And what might seem unimportant is the here and now. Because, you know, right now maybe there's nothing important happening. Maybe it's just, you know, another day goes by. <laughs> and... Uh, and a kind of uh, one can feel quite, uh, you know, bored or or uh, fed up with things, or just like you're wasting time and waiting for the next important thing to to uh, attach to. So here and now is where we are all the time, and awareness. This awakened awareness of the here and now, recognizing it. Then we began to get perspective on importance, on importance, and how we, we you know, how easily we, we can be overtaken by our worldly views, our attachments, our ideals, without knowing what's happening, without having any perspective on it, because uh, if it's something important, then we can we want to to really you know dedicate ourselves, give our lives to what is important. But still, this this is this is still sakya ditti. So sakya ditti, for those who may not know what the word means, is a personality view, the way we the way we perceive ourselves as persons or personalities, as individuals. Another, another thing is you, you, you know, in Sangha life is you gain seniority, you have responsibilities. So, uh, and this is, this is, this, this sense of responsibility, uh, you know, really investigate that. Because it is very intimidating, and and sometimes we don't want to be responsible for things. How many of you would really like to be the the head monk, the abbot of Amravati? You know, too many responsibilities, isn't it? It's uh, I don't want to do that um, because it, it is to, you know I'm not I can't. I don't want to be responsible for all that. Or, you know, taking on a responsibility of just being uh, somebody in charge of something. And uh, having, um, teaching Vinaya, or, or receiving guests, or whatever, being belonging to the Amravati Steering Committee, and on and on like this. We, you know, these are important uh, things to do, part of life, they have their importance, and and it, always there's this sense that we should be responsible, take it and be responsible for what we commit ourselves to, and that's true. But are you aware of it as a condition in your mind? This sense of I am responsible. Or I should be, 
or I have to be, or I don't feel I'm ready to take on any responsibility. This is, this is all the thinking process, the world we create, and we believe in it. So people that never question, never examine themselves, then they, then they always, you know, they can get easily get burnt out, fed up, had enough, and because you, 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 you never, you, you can carry this sense of responsibility with you back to your kuti. Wake up in the morning, and think, oh God, another day of meetings and responsibilities, and that very thought is a uh, you know can completely make you uh, make you feel exhausted and i'm just talking from my own experience <laughs> waking up and think, oh i've got this and that also and i feel i just want to go back to bed let's go to sleep and <laughs> because uh, of that re sense of i have to i should i'm responsible for or I've got to face something or deal with some delicate situation that I don't particularly, you know, want to be involved in or want to have to deal with. So in, in uh, developing the path, it's using all these conditions for being the knower of them as conditions. Now this doesn't diminish them in the sense of they're not important or it's not it's not dualistic anymore when you when you're resting in awareness, but you have perspective and uh, on the conditions and on your your on the sense of responsibility and how you you know you attach to that. Because you know on one level on the ideal level you should be responsible for what you're doing. You're responsible for your life. You're responsible for your practice. You're responsible for your morality. You're responsible, <laughs> and you should be, and that's true. <laughs> so this is this is the this, and that's important. <laughs> you see what I'm doing? This is this is a trap of the mind. It's when you don't know that when you commit yourself to the ideals of monasticism or responsibility or spiritual development without seeing what you're doing, when it's merely coming from Sakya Ditti or the self-view, from grasping ideas about Buddhism and practice and yourself and how things should be. And this is where, the, you know, this uh, Four Noble Truths is such a brilliant way of checking out, you know, what, what the, uh, what you're doing. Because when I, at least speaking from my own experience, when I carry burdens of responsibility from the Sakya Ditti level, then I do, I feel, you know, burdened by my position. I feel, you know, I just want to sometimes, I just, can't stand being abbot of a monastery or being a teacher or having to, you know, be responsible for, you know, the running of the monastery and 
all the rest, you know, it's just too much. Because I don't like those, that kind of responsibility on a personal level. Personally, I'd rather not have any responsibility. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's personal, that's the Sakyaditi side of me. But knowing of that, knowing Sakyaditi as that, it's Anicca Dukkha Anatta. Now what I've found out over these years is that by reflecting in this way, I've, uh, you know, you, this is a limitation of language. When you let go of sankara, when you know sankara, sankara, no matter if the sankara is important, unimportant, should and what's right and true and what shouldn't and and all the rest, when you've seen through the whole illusion of the world that you create for yourself and you let go of it. Now just try to imagine what it's like to not be attached to anything. To be completely free from attachment. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine what that would be like through thinking about it? You might, well, it would probably be free, no attachment. It says, Buddha says, there's no non-attachment is Nibbana and you're free. And that sounds very nice. You know, like to be free. But see, you can't imagine it. You can kind of create an idea that it would, you know, and it follow the, you know, the, te the scriptural teachings and be all for it. But the reality of non-attachment, do you know it? Do you know anatta through insight? Or do you, do you hold to a view that there shouldn't, there's no real self? And yet you spend the whole day thinking about yourself and your responsibilities and duties and how things should be and worry and get feeling burnt out or fed up or feeling not supported well enough. I hear that a lot. I don't feel supported. I don't feel I'm being respected or supported enough. I don't feel people are really pulling their weight. I think, you know, I want people to pull their weight and I, want, I don't want to have to feel that I have to keep pushing you all and having to drive you into d fulfilling your duties. <laughs> and this is, you know, then seeing that at Sakya Ditti. Now saying that Sakya Ditti, it sounds like a, like I'm saying Sakya Ditti is not any good. Any, I'm not saying that. I'm not, I'm not putting it into a context of good or bad because Sankara's some are good, some are bad, some are right, wrong, true, false, and all the rest. We're outside good and bad, right and wrong, true and false. And this is to be recognized. This recognition of non-attachment. And you, to recognize it is, is through connected awareness. Being aware, not just 
in a fragmentary moment, you know, just suddenly aware, then you're back into but learning to trust yourself in awareness, appreciating, surrendering to awareness. Now surrendering to awareness, this is this takes faith or sadha in Pali. But before you can surrender to through sadha, you have to recognize awareness and, you know, realize it. And this is what Third Noble Truth is. Realizing, recognizing. And this recognizing, because there's no self in it, Then, then it's easy to judge it in going back into the thinking mind. It doesn't seem like anything at all. Because it's just like, it's, you know, when you try to figure it out and, and describe it, you can't. It's like the unconditioned, unborn, uncreated, unformed. You can't, there's no, those words, you know, those are words, but you can't imagine it, and yet it's real—it's real. it's ultimate reality. And it can be recognized, but it can't be described. When you start to describe it, you end up thinking it's not worth anything. Like from my own experience, just trusting in awareness, and it seems like, you know, trying to evaluate it, Because the thinking mind is no longer being grasped. You're no longer believing or being pulled into the thinking process. So it doesn't seem like anything. Because it's the thinking process that we create values and create these dualisms, these extremes. So then, you know, it's like you, through your kind of increasing faith or surrender to this. You know, there's even a resistance to it because because there's something stimulating and exciting about important causes and issues and and uh, ideals. You know, it's exciting to think of of dedicating your life for for an ideal. Uh, like in trying to, to you know, solve the world's problems and and bring people to the Dhamma and all this. So this is this gives me a purpose, a sense of personal purpose and meaning to my life. Where emptiness, there's no meaning or purpose anymore. So that sounds rather bleak, doesn't it? In term, when you when you hear those words, and that's uh, where you know this has to be realized for yourself because you you might understand the words I'm using, but if you think about what I'm saying, you're going to get it all wrong. It's from an intuitive sense I'm appealing to, not from a rational one. Now some people. 
are no doubt thinking that I'm saying uh, ideals are a bunch of rubbish and altruism is just an illusion and and there's nothing to live for, there's no meaning, no purpose to... I'm not saying that, am I? And yet you could assume, you know, people do assume that I'm, that's what I'm saying. Because, because they, they still caught in the, in the uh, thinking process. They figured out that's how it sounds, maybe, the, through the, just the way that I'm speaking. You, you're emotionally attuned to thinking I'm just dismissing life or causes or good causes or justice and fairness and ideals and right and goodness and all the rest. But what I'm actually appealing to is uh, waking up and recognizing because with all the good causes and ideals uh, that human beings can create, we still manage to to uh, brutalize each other hopelessly. And even with good causes, we can become insensitive and patronizing. You know, we can, just like what we've done to, say, third world countries, thinking we know what they need. Because, you know, we, we think, well, democracy is what they need. And they need, a, you know, to have a government like we have. And <laughs> And I'm not saying that's even wrong, but but recognize it's still coming from Sakya Ditti, from the thinking process. It's not coming from Panya or wisdom. Now where wisdom can function is through awareness. So they use the word Sati Panya. And that's discerning. Discernment means then are, you know, the way we live is through discernment rather than through division, taking sides. Discerning then allows us to respond to situations and and to be able to know what's, rea to, to recognize reality and what is just convention, what is just condition, what is convention, what is... What what is what we want and what we uh, what we think should be and what we like and what we approve of and if we begin to see that doesn't mean that we we don't work for the welfare of humanity and and saving of sentient beings and and making the dumb available to to the Western world and living the holy life and all that. But it's coming from a discerning understanding, from a natta, rather than from uh, our own grasping of ideas and sense of ourself as somebody who's, who's uh, you know, has to or should or still operating from this dualistic conditioned thinking process. So this is, it's a mystery. At the end of the day, you're living in a mystery. 
because when you when you let go of the thinking process at first it's scary because it's it's you know you we're so so used to it, so attached to it, so bound to it, so believe in it. But you can also begin to see that thinking is, you know, if one thought goes on to the next, and try to think your way out of any situation. You know, and and just try to come to conclusions on what's right and what what the sangha should do and how what direction should it take and. And uh, well, that then we we go. You know, if you really observe, if you just attach to the thinking process, you go around in circles. And then you've always got uh, you know conflict with somebody else who doesn't agree with your particular take on the issue. So you get into uh, you know arguments or you know thinking, feeling unsupported or feeling that somebody's wrong, got it all wrong, and you're right. And then we become conceited, and, caught, and we, then we break up, and uh, we have to start our own, let's start a new religion. <laughs> One where everybody has to think like I do. <laughs> and you can see why in, in re in any in all the major religions, there's so many sects in them, isn't there? And Christianity this is chock a block with different takes on Christian on Christ and and Judaism and Islam. You know, the way the Shiites and Sunnis, you know, regard each other. And and there's an interesting book out now, uh, Karen Armstrong, who's quite a good scholar. She used to be a Catholic nun. And she's also very good. She, she disrobed. She's a scholar. And she wrote a book called The Biography of the Bible. And it very, she's traced its origins, you know, how it, was, how it was collated and formed into what we now regard as the Bible. Now, I was, I was brought up, you know, my parents said that the Bible is the Word of God. And that's the belief, you know, you take that, the Bible is the Word of God. And, um, well, you can't, you know, and then you try to read the Bible, and it's full of discrepancies, you know. It's just, it doesn't, a lot of it just doesn't make sense, or, you know, you can't, it, it doesn't, it isn't cohesive. And so there's tremendous kind of uh, effort to, to align everything, make it sound like, you know, it is just one basic message. Or ways that one can, you know, through sophistry, kind of arrange your intellect to, to look at it in a, in a very narrow way maybe, or a broad way, a liberal way, or a very conventional, very orthodox. One can do anything with one's thinking mind, you know, expand it, contract it, But you don't know what you're doing. You just, you know, you, if you're, you know, if you're prone towards liberal views, then you consider the, the kind of orthodoxy of it, uh, you know, not as good or inferior. 
or wrong even, or heretical, and vice versa. So we, we have to, we can't live with each other like the, the uh, Anglican Church at this time. Just around homosexuality, isn't it? Just total confusion where the American Episcopal Church and Church of England almost broke off from each other just because they have different takes on this issue. And, you know, so that just on something that doesn't seem terribly important, you know, in, you know, suddenly becomes the cause for, for a possible eventual division. And then there's this, uh, these African uh, bishops that want, you know, even want to separate from, from uh, Archbishop of Canterbury because he's quite liberal, but he's stuck in a very unfortunate position on this issue. Just this one issue is an obsession of present-day Anglicanism. And they don't see what they're doing. You know, they don't seem to know what they're actually doing by holding to views. So this can go on and on. If it's something like that, just around sexuality, then it goes on about doctrine, whether it's Trinity or not, or it's uh, Sunni or Shiite. I don't know what the, what the big problem is between those two. But then there's the Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, and the Roman Catholics. They can't agree either. And in Buddhism, we could, you know, we could make problems around Mahayana, Hinayana, Tibetan Buddhism, Thai Buddhism. We could create all kinds of problems. We in Thai Buddhism, we have Tamayut Mahanikai. In in for, Thai Forest Sangha of Mahanikai, we can still create a division around town monks and forest monks. And, you know, we get, there's anything, we can create a division around anything on the thinking process. Is Its very purpose is to cause division. It's a critical function. It criticizes. It says, this is right, this is wrong, this is better, this is worse, superior, inferior. That's the critic, that's critical function, isn't it? When you're attached to the thinking mind, then you're you're caught in this what, what they call its dualism. So this is this is better than that. This is right and that's wrong. So how do you get outside of right and wrong? Is by observing this of one's attachment to feeling right. I want to be right, personally. You know, Sakya Ditti, my personality, I, I want to be right. I'm the abbot of this monastery and I want to be right. And I want to be responsible and right. And I want to lead you all in the right direction and not the wrong one. I don't want to be anyone who's influencing you in any wrong way. And uh, I want to be a good abbot and a fair abbot and just and kind, compassionate. And I don't want to be mean-hearted, stingy, narrow-minded, selfish. So that's 
right too, isn't it? And that's the way it should be. But notice that that is still thinking. Now if you trust yourself to observe thinking, and this is what I'm trying to, you know, emphasize over and over, to not, not to try to stop thinking, as you shouldn't think anymore, but to get the, to awaken to thinking is like this. And, and so it's like, in how I've done that, is to, is to think and listen to myself thinking. So I can, I can take it to absurdity, like I'm right and, and anyone who doesn't agree with me is wrong. I can think that, but I can observe that also. I deliberately think that. Say I'm thinking the most outrageous, outrageous thought. I'm the best Buddhist monk in the whole world. <laughs> And so, <laughs> I hope nobody quotes me out of context. <laughs> it's, it's being recorded. <laughs> but that is awareness of that, you know. I, that's not, my ego doesn't support such outrageous extremities. You know, my ego is more subtle than that. It's, well, you know, I'm not the best, I'm just ordering. <laughs> but that's still Sakyaditi, isn't it? Whether I think I'm the, absolutely the, the greatest monk since the Buddha, or just being modest and reasonable about it, or being very uh, critical of myself. You know, I'm not really a very good monk. I'm, you know, I've, you know, some... Uh, I know that I make mistakes and I try so hard to be, you know, good monk and I want to be, but I do, you know, I can see my own weaknesses and so forth. And that's, that sounds more modest or absolutely the worst monk in the whole world. Buddhasasana would be much better off if I just dropped dead. Could think that. But this is thinking, isn't it? Now just exploring that, just observing that which is aware of I am the best or I'm just, uh, you know, good enough or the absolute pits of Buddhism, disgrace to the sasana. That which is aware of those thoughts, that's what I'm interested in. Reco this is a discerning practice. You know, it's not, it's not, it's not a thinking practice. You have to, by discerning, this awareness is not, has no sakyaditi. And therefore, I can be aware of sakyaditi because uh, the, the sense of myself as a personality comes and goes and changes. I can create myself into a, 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 you know, into a, a, a tyrant, into a reasonable, nice guy, into a, into a, a saint. Sometimes I can be very saintly as a person. <laughs> but it's, you know, it is, it's, it's observing, this, this which knows, the puto, 
the knower of the world, loka we do. Now as you explore that, so I'm not against thinking, but then that you begin to see the trap of being attached to the thought process out of ignorance, out of avicca. You're just caught in a vortex of your own thoughts. And, and uh, fair enough if that's, you know, if you have no, no sense for transcending that, then at least think good thoughts and, you know, be a good person. Be a kind person, be a generous person, be a fair person, just person. I encourage that if you're, you know, but also, no matter how kind or just or fair or saintly you are personally, it's still not liberation. It may bring a lot of happiness. But there's still, it's still unsatisfying at the end of the day. And so this is where this Dukkha Samudaya Niroda Maga, the Four Noble Truths, the Dukkha, the unsatisfactoriness, there is this. Because a personal personality is so changeable and so uh, influenced by con- other conditions, you know, one can be quite generous and kind and saintly and magnanimous when the conditions are there for that. You know, so in you know in much of our life we can be generous and kind, magnanimous because we have very good conditions to live in in this place. You know, you're not out in the in the world trying to make a living in in a stressful society, in a deluded society. So we can afford to be be magnanimous and generous and kind. But what would we do when things aren't like that? When we find ourselves where where the conditions are the opposite? If you're just caught in the personal you know, depending on conditions to support you to feel good about yourself, then that's easily lost because things change. Conditions are changing. But if you know this, if you're aware, enlightened, awake to Dhamma, then whatever way the conditions change, one's refuge is in the awareness, not in depending on good conditions to support happiness or a sense of well-being as a person. Now in just a monastery like this, how much, how many of you suffer a lot just around personal feelings and, and, and emotional reactions to each other? You know, it's because, you know, people suffer a lot here. But it's not because, you know, it's a competitive, stressful life. You can you can see it like that. 
if how you hold your position or your you know if you if you hate authority and and you resent uh you know sometimes you know so much of you hate or dislike hierarchy i hear that you know hierarchy is bad especially from women hierarchy is bad and there shouldn't be any hierarchy well hierarchy is you know you you're creating a problem around hierarchy nature is hierarchical you know, it's not, you know, it's not, it's not egalitarian. And you look at the, what happens, you know, it's not everything's equal and fair. But when you have conditioned phenomena, it's always going to be one, two, three. There's always going to be a sequence, you know, and A, B, C. You can't have A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, P, uh, in one thought. They have to have one one letter come first. The thinking process is like that. You can't think A, B at the same moment. You go A and then B. But awareness allows us to see, you know, is this, is this awareness is an intuitive state. It's putting... It's, it's letting ourselves rest in pure universal intelligence, not in personal views or attitudes uh, from thinking or holding to views. So the hierarchy can be good, can be bad, can be fair, can be unfair. You know, it's not there's nothing good or bad about hierarchy. It's just you know, it's just the the way the conditioned realm has to operate. <clears throat> so, so it's we're recognizing that, you know, so that our relationship to condition to the conventions is one of awareness and discernment rather than uh, believing in our own views and preferences and opinions about what's right and what's wrong. So then this awareness is where we're equal. When we, when we re realize the deathless or the unconditioned that's equal, that's not hierarchical. So this you can, you, you begin to recognize where equality, where everything belongs, where the hierarchies can be seen and recognized discerned, but one is no longer bound into the hierarchies or the positions of sankaras anymore, but liberated from them. So our relationship to sankaras is one of compassion, joy, though the metta, karuna, mudita, upeka, 
These Brahma Viharas don't come from from thinking. They're not created states that I, out of my psychedity, create metta. And my psychedity, I create compassion and sympathetic joy. I mean, I can fool myself that I'm a very compassionate person. Because I'd like to be on a personal level. My, you know, my altruistic personality would like to think of myself as compassionate. And so forth. So it's uh, and meta, but that's still that's that's meta kind of uh, as an ideal, uh, karuna as an ideal. But the realities come from the empty, empty mind, from pure consciousness. And then it's not me trying to have meta, but it's. Metta is a, is the natural response to conditioned phenomena, all conditioned phenomena, all hierarchy, from the devadas to the beings in the Avicii hell. So the Brahma realms to the Avicii hell, you know, the cosmology of Buddhism. Metta. Embraces all of them. Has no preferences. Doesn't favor the humans over the pretas or the hungry ghosts or the animals. But we, as personalities, have our preferences. You know, hungry ghosts are inferior. You know, they they kind of you know live in a sordid world of obsession and low, low kind of desires and, and selfish obsessions and addictions. And, and I certainly don't want to be like that. But I do feel sorry for the poor creatures. <laughs> they do suffer. And I, you know, I want to send them my metta. Well, that's, that's fine, you know, in the terms of it's, it's on a, you know, if you're going to, if you're decided to, to take everything personally, then, you know, do that. Better to, to have ideals and, and do good and, and identify with the good and the true and the beautiful. But condition phenomena changes and conditions don't always support what your personality uh, depends on to feel well or feel respect for yourself. So we're thrown into all kinds of situations on many uh, conditions unwanted. And how, who knows what's going to happen to any of us in the future. But the deathless then is is our refuge, is the which then, then the, the awareness and the discernment, we can deal with the, the changing conditions, whether they be, you know, no matter how good or bad those conditions might be in the present. And so you find your, your strength in this awareness. It's like this, this uh, image uh, that I've had for years of the lotus blooming in the midst of, of the inferno. 
I always like that image, you know. The lotus is a kind of delicate, beautiful flower. Easily destroyed, isn't it? And especially if it's surrounded by an inferno. They've got this raging inferno fire around, surrounding this uh, beautiful, delicate lotus. And then the, the, the uh, message is a lotus blooming in the midst of the inferno, inferno is indestructible. So this is what I call awareness. This awareness then is, it's indestructible once you recognize it. You don't destroy it, you just forget it as you get intimidated and caught up into the importance or the unimportance or the reactions to the conditioned realm on a personal level. So I, from my own experience then, I, you know, I still have, you know, personality still operates. So I have likes and dislikes and preferences and opinions. But I know them. There's a knowing of them as for what they are. So like like um, being responsible for Amravati. I know that. I've, you know, on a personal level, I know what it is. So I don't grasp it. I surrender, you know, the sense of surrendering to or the awareness in the present. I trust that. I don't trust the the feelings I get when I get caught up in thinking I have to be responsible for everything. Even though that's good, you know, it's, it's better, isn't it, than feeling I'm I'm not going to be responsible for anything. I don't care what they say. I'm not going to do it. Going to do my own thing and not have to just take duties and responsibilities and ruin my life. I didn't ordain here to be responsible for this building and all this people coming and going and new candidates and training people and seeing the gardens are kept and the, uh, today we, we, we blessed the lawnmower. <laughs> that doesn't make so much noise. And I suppose you're all very happy about that because you hate lawnmowers that make noise, don't you? How many of you get averse when the when you hear the lawnmower? You know, and how many can you be? How many of you can be aware of that aversion? You know, so you say, "Now I'm giving a retreat, and I don't want you to mow the lawn while I'm giving my retreat." So you, you say to tell Josh, "Don't mow the lawn while I'm giving my retreat." If you do, I'm going to come out and punch you in the nose. <laughs> so this <laughs> but the present one still makes some noise. You can hate and be averse to if you want to. Or you can switch the light on. You know, the noise is bearable. It's your own aversion to it that is, uh, that is unbearable. And you create that. 
you know, I can't stand that lawnmower just disrupting my silent retreat. That is your creation, isn't it? Now, that's understandable on a personal level, but the freedom from that is awareness of it. I'm not saying you should say, I love the noise of the lawnmower, and you had to fool yourself into, you know, that you should be able to just accept it and put up with it. That's still Sakyaditi. But to, you know, have this direct kind of honesty of observing how much I don't want this is like this. Not wanting that noise, feeling annoyed is like this. And then being able to, to accept the way you're feeling and let it be there. Not trying to, to, to suppress it or get rid of it, but allow it to be, allow yourself to feel annoyed, but be aware of it. To be really annoyed and fed up is like this. And as you, you begin to just allow this to be what it is, With no conditions. You're not saying you're doing this in order to get rid of it. Then you're, you know, you're cheating yourself. And it's like what I think they call the karunas is the felt sense. It's the feeling of the moment is like this. It's indescribable. You know, it's not, not, and I can't find a word for it. Because when you, when you recognize it and accept it, it is, it's changing. It has no, if you hate it and don't want it, then it seems kind of permanent. You know, you're making it more than what it is, so it has a, a kind of solidity to it that, that you create around it because you're grasping it. But if you are willing to feel, to, to be conscious of the feeling of aversion, of not wanting something is like this. Now when I do this, it, it just drops away on its own. It's unsustainable. But throughout that, then what sustains itself is the awareness. The awareness receives it and the conditions arise and cease. So this is the deathless, you know, the. This is the rea this is a reality. This is a fact. This is real. The world that you create out of ignorance is not real. It's illusion. That's why it's unsatisfactory. So I leave you with this to contemplate. <laughs>